Welcome to the podcast about the books we read, and maybe you should too. So there are two of us in the studio today. My name is Jaron Miller, and I am a millennial from the southern United States who is one semester from completing a degree in English education. So as you might suspect, I care about literacy, reading, writing, and guiding others towards um, pursuing education for themselves. And I'm Reagan Schrock. I'm also a millennial from the southern part of the United States. Uh, Jaren and I have actually known each other for, I don't know, our whole lives, I suppose. I have a great interest in media, uh, communications, using things like mass communications to reach out to a lot of people for the sake of positivity. Um, And a a big one for me is um, going against the celebration of ignorance, I think is what I would call it. It's just in in our society where there's almost this chip on our shoulders. We're like, oh, we don't have to listen to whatever whatever because we got this it's almost like a celebration of i don't i don't need to look into that i already know all of that and i just love accumulating knowledge so i tend to react against that which is why i love to read um hence this little book club podcast thing we got going on but anyway your book first jaren i'm very curious because it's one i have not read Yeah, so the book I will be discussing is called Cultural Literacy and is written by Edie Hirsch. Now, this is a bit of an older book. If I remember correctly, it was written in 1987? Uh, let's look here. Yeah, take a look. Yeah, this is an old book. Wow. The cover is a very odd color of something because it's 1987. I think you would call that burgundy. Yeah, but it... Yeah, an odd color of burgundy. <laughs> 1987, yes. Yeah, so Edie Hirsch is an elderly gentleman. He's still alive. I think he's 91 years old, so he was born in 1928. And Cultural Literacy was one of his early books in which he explored the ideas of um, what he calls the Matthew Principle. He wrote a book more recently in 2006. It's called The Knowledge Deficit where he basically revisits some of the ideas and expands upon the ideas that he first presented in cultural literacy. So as an educational psychologist, Edie Hirsch was interested in what it means to know and what it takes to acquire knowledge. Basically what he proposes, as I already mentioned, is the Matthew Principle. So the Matthew Principle is taken from Matthew 13, 12, which says, Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So this, of course, comes from the New Testament, and the way E.D. Hirsch uses this um, principle probably isn't congruent with the original context um, that was intended when Jesus spoke that. But what he means by the Matthew Principle is that when a person has knowledge, they are equipped to gain more knowledge. So he makes the case that within any sort of communication, whether it's oral communication, in speech, or in text, the reader, I mean the writer or the communicator, presupposes that their audience shares a common knowledge base because everything that one says is contextualized. And so you assume that the recipient of what you're saying is able to understand because they share your background information. 
Maybe another way of saying it is that knowledge is the building blocks for gaining more knowledge. And so as he would apply this to education, he would say within a civil society, with each other, there needs to be a shared body of knowledge or a shared common core of knowledge so people can communicate and understand each other. And for applying this to schools, he would say each school should teach their students a common body of knowledge. So across all the schools in America, he might advocate that a similar curriculum is being used and students are being taught similar things. Oh, this, okay, this is interesting. Okay, I've never read this book before, so this is all new to me. But it sounds like what he's advocating is, con we, we always hear content is key or is like the king of whatever you're doing. The content is the most important part. But it sounds like he's saying the context is equally as important. Like the framework. Right, and he might say the content forms the context or the framework. And he would specifically talk about the tendencies to teach um, within schools critical thinking skills or teaching research skills, mm -hmm. which I don't think anybody would um, deny the legitimacy of. Students in schools absolutely should learn to think critically and to research. But he would say if only research is being taught or if only critical thinking is being taught without a body of knowledge and content within that context, really we're not learning the kind of education that we should be learning. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I'm just looking at the uh, looking at the dust jacket here. This is interesting. He's like he, he's giving examples and he says the high school student who thinks that Leningrad is a city in Jamaica or that the Alamo is an epic poem attributed to Homer cannot really read is what he's saying about these students. Um, nor can the college student who on a general knowledge test identifies Socrates as a Native American chief. <laughs> wow. that's pretty bad but you know if you were never taught those things or never had a context to plug that information into you would have no idea that's, exactly that's exactly very so how does that okay I, I should read this book how does that apply to us today then oh, this is 1987 no. so right so I would say all, all educators in America probably should be at least familiar with the concept that he is promoting um, and being in a teacher education program at my university, that's something of, I, of course, care about. But I also care because um, for my own education, I was homeschooled. And for my observation, which I acknowledge is limited, there's always exceptions to what I'm about to say. But within homeschools, within private schools who are not required to follow state standards or federal standards for education, um, it's entirely possible that the students being taught in public, I mean, I mean in private schools or in home schools, do not learn the same core body of knowledge that almost every American does. And so if a student is homeschooled by sincere, well-meaning parents, they probably will learn. But what they learn is not the same building blocks that will enable them to be most optimally conversant with the broader world. And so I might suggest that um, parents who are thinking of homeschooling their students or are homeschooling their students to take seriously what the state standards are for the state or even to take seriously what the common core standards are and try to discern how those 
mainstream standards could be incorporated into their own um, homeschool practice. And I would say the same thing for private schools. Um, students really would benefit from gaining the kind of cultural literacy that will enable them to be conversant with the broader world. Basically, the standards, regulations in education didn't come just out of thin air. Like there, there is a reason, right, of them trying to build a context for students, give them a common foundation to stand on and whenever you circumnavigate that whenever you're not a part of that you step away from that um, there's going to be consequences and sometimes we can't always see those until 20 years down the road yes that is correct Mm. absolutely right that's very interesting yeah so that is what i have been reading okay so what have you been reading reagan I've been reading a lot of books. I tend to read very fast um, and also do a lot of audiobooks. So <gasps> the computer died. We're good. Are we still here? It's still good. Oh, okay. Okay, good. <laughs> so the book I chose, um, this this one caused a lot of ripples, actually. Uh, let's see what year was it published. 2015. Um, it's called Heretic by Ayan Hirsi Ali. Um, it's... It's oh the subtitle is why Islam needs reformation now. Um, so if you're familiar with me or any of the other content I'm involved in producing, I do a lot of other podcasting, uh, YouTube things like that. Um, I'm I'm very deeply involved in the Middle East and um, Islam and working in some of those areas in the refugee crisis. Um, so we we run into all kinds of craziness. Um, I'm in and out of Iraq um, multiple times a year, and so this book was very intriguing to me. Because right now, especially in the, it feels like it's often in politics, but just on the street as well, just every day, there seems like there's, there's there's a schism that's getting wider and wider where one side is saying Islam is a religion of peace and they're wonderful people and we should just accept them all and, you know, refugees are welcome, this whole thing. Okay, so sure. So then you, then you have the other side of that, which is something we're seeing here in the U.S., It's uh, particularly in the current political climate, which is saying, well, we, just, you know, we, we don't want Islam. We don't want refugees. Um, there's even been talk of a, quote, Muslim ban, which nobody really seems to know what that is. But it, it's just it gets very much of a lightning rod situation. So right in the middle of this, you have this book get, get published in 2015. And, and she's a, a well-known scholar from Denmark. Um, she's originally from Somalia. Born, raised Muslim, and eventually flees as a refugee because, you know, it's Somalia, and ends up in Denmark and becomes an atheist in the end. She decides to not follow Islam. And then years later in reflection um, and off of a lot more research and things like that, started writing several, you know, various books about um, her experiences. And it's a real eye-opener. I'm not sure if I agree with her on everything, but... She basically has, she, and she lays it out very clearly based on her own, like her own experiences, like life experience, but also like she was part of the Muslim Brotherhood for a while at one point and was very radical, um, and like a hardline Muslim Brotherhood member, um, and she said there is something inherent in the worldview of Islam that gives the possibility for violence that isn't necessarily there in other worldviews. 
and and which is a really scary thing for some people to say in especially in some you know places uh where you know you're not i mean that'd be called hate speech or something and she comes out and just says it pretty straight up and she's like look i i've been there i i've spent a good portion of my life in these countries she lived in multiple countries out of saudi arabia Somalia, all, all these different places and how there is something in that mindset that needs a serious reformation so so at the end because there's there's a a fine line between saying that okay there's something here that's not right and then between saying that and then saying okay therefore they're all bad and we need to throw it all out and this is terrible she doesn't say that which is good because you know based on her personal experiences it's been um, pretty difficult life she says islam needs a reformation very much like the protestant church um, came out in during the Reformation, the Christian Reformation. She said that's what Islam needs today. It's a fascinating concept. I, 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 and and the future will tell if she's actually right. But she says she thinks it's already happening. So not necessarily saying we should throw out Islam and all of this, but the inherent belief system that allows it to um, to cause so much violence or to be the um, source of so much jihadist you know movements and terrorism and, and things like that that is a fascinating concept but like you alluded to earlier there are very different visions of what islam means mm-hmm. and there are currently branches from what i understand who do reject violence and those violent tendencies that shows up in some other traditions of islam so how is what she's proposing different from what we're already seeing because I mean, how would, how would a reformed Muslim be different from a current liberal or progressive Muslim who does reject the violence that we often see happening in some parts of the world? Yeah, so she says it's 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 an entire worldview that's there, and so if you go to to many different Islamic countries today, and and this is this is present, but there's plenty of parts in Islamic history where things were not violent or whatever, but it just feels like the the settings are allowing it to go that way a lot more so she's saying she's advocating what what you're basically saying right there is there are plenty of islamic groups that are perfectly peace peaceful i mean the vast majority is that way but you have in these certain pockets you still have that worldview is still is still there and she's saying that's the part that needs to be addressed because it's been allowed to fester and be in that part of that religion and where you know they're referring back to their holy books and saying these things that um this is what we need to do and she's saying the progressive side of islam that's advocating peace basically needs to rise up as as it happened in the reformation in the christian church where that they rose up and said you know this is not real christianity that's what she's advocating for Will it actually happen? I don't know, but it seems like it is in some places already. Uh, yeah. So, so what is the basis for what she's advocating? Does she have a new hermeneutic or exegesis of the Quran, or she's saying violence just causes social problems? Therefore, Islam needs to change. I'm just curious how does she mm-hmm. how she proposes with also proposing an integrity to what Islam is meant to be or how does she define what islam is meant to be exactly and this is why the book was such a lightning rod because everybody's like oh well you're now you're i mean you're destroying islam you know what one side was saying and then the other side's like yeah you're right on like you know this is perfect um <laughs> she's saying we need the violent side of islam and islamic countries which there's plenty of examples i mean iraq syria like somalia they just it's there's 
this is a pretty serious problem. That side is clearly not working. And and we've got to address that. And she thinks Muslims and is, you know, the Islam Islam is the way to answer those problems in in her opinion by advocating for the peaceful side and saying the violence doesn't have anyway she's not, so 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 she's not going for a new her- hermeneutic she's just saying this isn't working i'm sure plenty of people within the islamic world have strong opinions on both sides of this issue <laughs> yeah so there was a terrorist cell that got really mad at her and actually put a hit squad out against her oh, no. and like, tried to assassinate <laughs> her a couple of times yeah it's pretty nasty so like there's definitely like yeah some bad people that didn't that didn't like that she was advocating for peace which you know is a thing i guess Okay, so we are approaching the end of this episode. Uh, to reiterate, the book that I spoke about um, at the first part of this episode is called Cultural Literacy, and it was written by Edie Hirsch and published in 1987. And maybe one more time with your book, Regan? Yeah, so the one I recommended, and, and I do recommend it, it, it will definitely make you think, Heretic by Ayan Hirsi Ali. Um, the subtitle is Why Islam Needs a Reformation Now. Okay, so we are just about to wrap this up, and Reagan has an announcement for us. We might be back. We might not. You'll just have to let us know if you like these or not. But this is kind of an experiment. So so we would love to hear your feedback. We can guarantee at least one more episode, but after that, who knows? <laughs>